It's been 25 weeks since we last met in person. Uh, and hopefully very soon we have some announcements to make around our scheduling and our plans to come back together safely here in this space at the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue. Um, but 25 weeks and a lot has happened, as you all know, in those 25 weeks, and most of it has been negative. Some 175,000 Americans have died of or with COVID-19. I read this week that over 57 million Americans have filed for unemployment since mid-March. We have widespread racial tensions. We have urban rioting and protesting unrest like we haven't seen in a number of decades. There are massive spikes in violent crime, in homelessness, in drug abuse, and, and physical and sexual abuse, even within the home. We're also in the middle of an election year, and you all are experiencing that kind of drastic polarization of our culture politically and socially yet again. We have here in our own state record wildfires and many of them that are literally closing down our highways and choking out our air. Most of our school districts that have either started a week ago or start this coming week are back, but 100% online. Now, normally the church would be a collective presence in the middle of injustice and oppression and challenges and all of these things that lead to despair, but not this year because this pandemic has sent us home. And even where government officials have not necessarily forbidden us from a certain size of meeting, a number of Christians have voluntarily chosen to avoid contact with other Christians for a number of months. Now, I know what this has done to my own heart. I know the, the angst, the, the pain, the isolation, the frustration, the anxiety that many of you experience and have been gracious to acknowledge that you're experiencing these things, that, that the isolation that's been driven deep in your heart by not being around a community of believers week after week and in the middle of the week has made you feel burnt out. And you know, I hear from a lot of people, I'm just perpetually on edge. Like the littlest thing kind of sets me off because I'm just way over here on the edge. And I certainly understand. I have dear friends who have lost loved ones, who have lost jobs, even businesses that they founded, people who have lost their life savings. I know of marriages that are on the brink of collapse because people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's a difficult time. Well, a few weekends ago, our family drove down to southwest Colorado, kind of near Moab, Utah. Never been there before. It's a very desert, very arid, very dry, extremely hot. So this Saturday morning, we went for, you know, a mid-morning hike back through some of these slot canyons and we're, we're making our way up this trail and I mean it just got hotter and hotter and our ice water that each of us were carrying like very quickly turned into warm water which then was gone and we would stop under these little shrub bushes and just try to get a little bit of shade 
but there was hardly any shade. And it was just sweltering and suffocating. It was hard to breathe in that kind of temperature and dryness. And I thought in the middle of that hike, I was like, this is the perfect metaphor for 2020. As many of you feel like I've been led by God into this desert place and it's hot and it's dry and it's exhausting and nothing is, nothing is pouring into me, nothing is filling my cup and I'm running out of resources and I'm running out of patience and maybe I'll just find an ounce of shade and just kind of curl up to die. You know, that's how many of us feel. Well, I want you to imagine that as you're curled up there under that tiny bit of shade and you're dehydrated and you're exhausted and you're desperate, you suddenly begin to hear just a faint sound of a trickle of water that then grows and becomes closer and closer and that trickle turns into more of a stream and finally you see it that there's a stream of ice cold, crystal clear water, you know, coursing down through the rocks near you. I bring up this metaphor because this week in my devotions, as I was reading through Isaiah, I ran across this verse, Isaiah 43, verse 21, where the Lord says to his people, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So listen, if you're doing great, I'm, I'm happy for you. I really am, okay? Some of you I've talked to and you're like, you know, I'm an introvert and this social distancing stuff has been fantastic, Okay, most of us are not like that, all right, just so you know. Or I've heard other people say, you know, my business is actually doing better than ever because of the pandemic and the type of business that's been driven to me in the midst of something that's really hard on a lot of other people. So, you know, I don't know if you own a liquor store or what, but I've had people say that to me. I'm doing fantastic um, and I'm happy for you. And I've had other people say stuff like, uh, you know, we were homeschooling before all this and so it actually feels kind of good to watch you all have to figure out and do what we've been doing all along. Okay, and you get kind of like a, almost like a dirty pleasure out of watching other parents struggle that had chosen a different model and a different method for discipling and um, teaching their children, okay? Um, if, if you're doing fantastic, honestly, this message may not be like the message for you because this morning I'm talking to the rest of you who would say, I am hurting and I'm hungry. You say, I'm, I'm licking my wounds, honestly, from being fired from my job or having a marriage that's struggling because although we love each other, we're having a difficult time to spend all this time together while the kids are here and we're trying to figure out this and stuff's falling apart and just our natural flesh is just making things difficult. Okay, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to those of you who are anxious, to those of you who do feel burnt out and at the end of your rope. I'm talking to people this morning that you would say, I am thirsty for renewal. I want God to come and restore my soul and put the broken things back together, okay? And this morning, the message title is The Anatomy of Revival. 
Revival is a word I grew up with in the Deep South, okay? Revival was like, if you don't know, it's when your church opens the doors, has a special speaker come in, and for usually a week-long period of time, you have these special services that are geared toward kind of like a new spiritual awakening, like uh, we're, we're, we're losing our passion for God, let's, let's reignite that, okay? I'm not talking about that kind of revival this morning, although I still love the word revive or revival. I mean, it literally is a, is a Latin prefix and a Latin root that, that basically mean to make alive again. Okay, to to come back to life. And some of you that I'm talking to this morning, you're you're thinking, yeah, I'd like my life back. And I think God wants you to have, and not the former life back, but the best life imaginable in Christ as he redeems and heals and restores your soul like ice cold, crystal clear water in the middle of a parched desert. That's what God wants for your soul. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Okay. So I'm talking about personal renewal, which sometimes leads to corporate renewal. Now we can't promise what God is going to do. Um, We're not putting God in debt to us to do something in particular that we'd like him to do. But personal renewal is a precursor to corporate renewal. We have to have individuals who are saying, yes, God, I'm going after you and I'm choosing this and I'm asking this, I'm asking for this and I'm desperate and I'm hopeful for this. And as God starts to do this with a number of different individuals, all of a sudden something can kind of spread like wildfire, but in a positive sense and just take over and see corporate renewal, which we're all praying for, okay? Second Chronicles chapter 34, I directed you there a few moments ago. Let me just give you an overview of where we're jumping into this story. So the one people of God, Israel, have long since divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern tribes of Israel with their capital in Samaria. You have the southern tribes of Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. Israel has been so rebellious against God, by the way, they each had their own kings and kingdoms and all that. They've already been wiped out and deported by the Assyrian megapower, okay? Judah is still kind of limping along with a couple tribes. They still have their capital in Jerusalem. They still have the temple, although we'll find out in a moment it's in serious disrepair. And they are just limping along in all kinds of idolatry and just social injustice, no concern for God, no concern for the oppressed, Okay. One king, Ammon, was actually so wicked, his own servants murdered him in his own house, and then they were punished, and the son, Josiah, is installed as a king. So where I'm picking up the story in Second Chronicles 34, you've got an eight-year-old boy inheriting the throne after a failed coup attempt. Let's look at verses one through seven. The word of the Lord says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them. And he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. 
He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in the ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And what we're already seeing here is that for whatever reason, this boy, without any positive role model, not his father, not his grandfather really, he chooses to follow after God with his heart. He says he doesn't turn to the right, doesn't turn to the left, just like, I'm going to follow God. And then as a 20-year-old, he starts tearing down all these idols and high places of his ancestors. Going back to 2 Kings chapter 22 for just a moment, which tells the same story, just in a little bit different sense. So I'm jumping back over there just to read one short section. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, we read this. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. And what's going on here is he's saying, let's take that temple treasury, the money that has been given to God and a portion set aside, and it's just sitting there, just rotting away in the temple. Let's take that money, let's hire some artisans and some craftsmen, and let's start repairing the house of God. Okay, back over to Second Chronicles 34, now verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and they have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Azahiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. I mean, this is an incredible thing, friends. If you realize what's happening, he's saying the book of the law of Moses, you know, basically the Pentateuch. Some commentators think this was maybe the book of Deuteronomy in particular, but it's been missing all these years. And it seems like people didn't even realize that there's this book that God gave us. Okay, and in our, in our generations before us, our ancestors followed the, the law of God. Now we don't even have it. Where is it? They had, they had no idea. And in the middle of taking out the money of the treasury, they find the book of the law behind the money. 
and they say, let's read this book out loud. And what I want to drive you to here is that when Josiah hears the words of the law, his heart is shattered. You notice his response where he says, we've got to inquire of God. We've got to figure out what this means because we haven't been doing this stuff. Okay, if this is what obedience to God looks like, if this is what true worship looks like, we're, we're way off the reservation. We have missed it entirely. Go inquire of the Lord. We've got to know what God says about this. Okay, so to make a long story short, if you were to keep reading in either 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, they go to this prophetess of the Lord named Huldah. And she has this twofold message. Number one, she says, all the curses that are written in this book for those who reject Yahweh and disobey his law, those are still gonna hold true for the people who have forsaken God. But number two, she says this, but Josiah the king will be spared. And she says this, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. So going on, what happens in 2 Chronicles 34, let's pick up our reading in verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. And he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All the days of Josiah the king, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Chapter 35, verse 1, Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. So what you see here is that he's recovered this. He's heard this word from the prophetess of God who's saying, you're still under judgment if you forsake the law, if you refuse to do what God commands you to do if you refuse to worship him. So he publicly reads God's word. He leads them in this covenant renewal of, you know, our generation has not made these promises to God. We have not received his promises. We have not been living in light of his promises. So let's renew this covenant and and let's continue to purge the land of idols. And then I read chapter 35, verse one, because this is very important. He reinstated the Passover feast this greatest feast of Israel's history that commemorated every year the exodus from Egypt when God comes down and delivers them from bondage in Egypt and leads them out through this sacrificial Passover lamb. God goes before them as this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke and he parts the Red Sea and he leads his people safely through to the promised land. He says, we're bringing that back. We are going to celebrate what God has done. Okay, and then we have this summary statement of this whole story, 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Before him, there was no king like him, 
who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And this is the word of the Lord, and this brings us to our one big idea this morning. And when I say the anatomy of revival, here, here's the one big idea. Revival or renewal or restoration, these words are interchangeable, but revival or renewal comes to those who pursue God's heart. That's what you see Josiah doing. That's what all of this is about. Let me, let me break this down for you. Let me unpack that one statement in its simplicity that, that I'm not saying that re- revival doesn't mean, oh, my circumstances will all change if I just believe what you're saying, if I just do what you're saying. Uh, it also doesn't mean that we're going to lead and be responsible in some way for the next great awakening in our land. I, I would pray for that, but, but, but God doesn't owe it to us to do that. And often he doesn't. But this is, friends, the path to personal spiritual renewal. And I've summarized it with four words. Pursue, repent, purge, and restore. And let's take just a couple moments with each of those four things as I now take the story of Josiah and what God did there and make general principles that if we want to see God heal and restore and bring revival into our souls and restore our strength and restore our priorities and restore our vision and restore our hope. This is what we do. Number one, pursue God with focused desperation. This is what Josiah is doing when it says he walked in all the ways of David, his father, didn't turn to the right, didn't turn to the left. That's that focus and then you see at, at, at age eight, it's like he's, or not, not age eight, but the eighth year of his reign, so age 16, it says, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek God. When this book of the law is discovered, what is his immediate reaction? Go inquire of the Lord. And it's interesting, the word seek and the word inquire are the same Hebrew word. And it's this idea of giving diligent attention to something. And basically, here's what I hear the writer saying is that Josiah is sitting here with this insatiable pursuit of God and everything that he knows of God, he wants to know more. I want to know more. I want to know God's heart. I want to know God's will. I want to know God's promises. I want to know God's covenant. I want to know God's way. I'm after God's heart. Are you after God's heart? Are you pursuing the heart of God? of God in a focused and disciplined way? Because what's the alternative? I mean, some of you may be using most of your energy to actually just go after something completely different. This is what I love. This is what I think will make life work for me. This is what's important to me right now. This is what I'm afraid of right now. And you're just going after something completely different. Or I'm afraid what we often do is, even as followers of Jesus, is we divide our attention. And we're like, well, I'll give a chunk of it to God because I know that's the right thing to do. But I, I still love these other things. I still trust these other things. And, and we're divided. We're, we're going after God half-heartedly. We're like, yeah, I could, I could read the law like, like Josiah did. Or I could, you know, binge Netflix with all this extra time I have on my hands. I don't know about you, but I've found it really hard to just spend chunks of time in the word and chunks of time praying during this season. That 
it's like so often when I'm just trying to read, trying to know God's heart, trying to cry out to him, there's all these distractions. You know, other thoughts come into my head of I should be doing this and I'm way behind on this project and this, this building and this, this thing that I need to do for church and I gotta get these emails come out and then we got you know, cell phones and computers and you, you see the notifications and it just drives you away from that. So listen, I'm preaching first to myself. I'm sick and tired of this in myself, this constant distraction that steals intimacy with God, honestly. Half-hearted, sidetracked, lukewarm Christians do not experience deep soul renewal. And they certainly don't lead it for others either. It is faithful, focused, committed, wholehearted pursuers of God's heart that experience revival. So number one, pursue God with focused desperation. Number two, repent and grieve over sin. Josiah is a picture of true repentance. You saw this in the story, that as soon as this law is read, he's never heard this before. As soon as it's read, he is tearing his clothes. This is not the picture of a man who thinks, oh, what a bummer, we let God down. He is heartbroken. He is distraught over his sin. He says, go inquire of the Lord for great is his wrath against the people of this place because we have not kept the word of the Lord. You know, this is the very opposite of just blame shifting or self-justifying when you're caught in sin. This is the very opposite of, of accusing God of being, I don't know, moody or judgmental. Like, who are you to get all angry at us? Whoa, okay. No, he says, God, you... You, you have every right to pour out your wrath because I understand you're a holy God. You're, you're a glorious God. You're a just and righteous God. And we have not done what you told us to do. And you said, if we did these things, there would be only blessing. But if we did these other things and worship these other gods, there would be only a curse. So he understands and he repents and he grieves and when the prophetess of the Lord gives Josiah that response that you will be spared from this judgment that comes, do you remember what, what she said there? She said, you're, you're gonna be spared because your heart was tender and humble and broken and you wept, you grieved, you lamented over sin. When he saw sin, the word used there was just he was responsive and he was submissive. He was penitent, he was contrite. When's the last time you looked at your sin and said, you know what, I am God helping me. I just want to be done with this. I'm not making excuses. I'm not calling it something else. Give it a different label so it doesn't sound bad. I'm tearing my clothes, at least figuratively, with God, I am distraught and I deserve your judgment. Thank you for your grace that comes through Jesus. So that's pursue and repent. Number three, purge. Purge idols and rivals. You know, it's hard to imagine what we see in this story that over just a few generations, the people of God, the people that had literally, Yahweh is leading them. He's speaking to them out of a cloud. He's using his finger to trace on tablets of stone to give it to Moses. And they have these stories and they have these covenants and they have this salvation. And in a few short generations, the temple of God, the ark is gone and they have rebuilt it basically and let it run down and they're worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth, the Asherah, um, Canaanite gods. 
says in the valley next to Jerusalem, there is like a, a worship center to Molech where they literally would take their children and take their children down into this valley and stoke a fire in the belly of this God, this idol, and they'd throw their kids in there. Here, see how, see how spiritual we are? See how committed we are to worshiping this metal object. And you see that when Josiah becomes aware of who God is, he says, this stops now. This stops on my watch. This is all coming down. I mean, this was the original cancel culture because he's like, if there is any, if there's a horse somewhere that was associated with worshiping a false God, it's coming down and we're going to burn it and we're going to grind it into powder and we're going to scatter it on the graves of the people who worship this garbage. Okay, there will be no rival in Israel. There will be no rival in my heart to the worship of the one true God. This is what he's saying, okay? And you see the summary in 2 Chronicles 34, 33, Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory. And all their days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of the fathers. And here's the thing, friends. If you trust God, that trust must be exclusive. And if you worship God, God, that worship must be exclusive. That's why it says he did this with his whole heart. He did it with his whole soul. He did it with all of his might. See, if you trust and you worship anyone or anything else in addition to God, it betrays the fact that you don't really know God because you're hedging your bets. You're like, "Uh, yeah, I trust you, but not fully. And God's like, I can be trusted fully. It's like those people you take rock climbing and they're finally on belay and they're supposed to lean back, you know, and just trust that rope and trust the gear that can hold thousands of pounds and they weigh 150. And there they are clinging to the rock, hedging their bets. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to let go. I want to be in control. I don't want this thing just, you know, holding me, sustaining me. Don't trust the rope. Some of you don't trust God. But if God is God, if he's the living God, if he's the true God, he's worth you saying, God, you get all of my trust. You get all of my hope. You get all of my delight. And I'm going to seek my satisfaction in you and in you alone. And as you put gifts in my life to enjoy, ultimately, again, I'm going to go back to you again and again and just say, thank you. You're a good giver. You're a good father but I delight in you, I worship you, okay? What rivals are there in your own heart, in your own thoughts, in your own priorities, in your own schedule that you would say, if I'm going to experience the kind of revival and restoration, the renewal that God wants for my soul, I've got to tear these things down and grind them to powder and be done with them. Because so long as you hold on to those things that seem to be promising you something, Baal promised fertility. You know, um, these different gods were there for a reason. The Bible actually says in the story, they were worshiping the sun and the moon and the constellations instead of worshiping the God who made those constellations. But where have we done the same thing where we've turned from the creator to the creature? And we've made the creature ultimate in our affections and how would we purge those idols, okay? One more thing, one more step. Pursue, repent, purge, finally restore. Restore true worship. 
And I see this three ways. Number one, they clean the temple. They say the temple's in disrepair. This is the house of God. So spiritual reform is going to start by us cleaning and restoring and rebuilding this place where God has chosen to meet with us. Now, today the temple is no longer a building. It hasn't been for a few thousand years because Jesus Christ came and he said, don't worry, this temple, this building in Jerusalem is coming down. And you, follower of Jesus, you, church, the Bible says, are the temple of the living God. He lives in you. He works through you. So this is a call. If I want renewal, if I want restoration, if I want revival, it is a call to clean this temple, this body, this life, this mind, these affections, these emotions, and say, God, I give them to you. They are yours. Cleanse this. Purify this. Consecrate this to yourself. Restoring true worship. Secondly, we see not only are we cleaning the temple, but centering your life on the presence and the word of God. There's a little detail in here that you might have missed, but the Bible actually says that after all this time, after they've cleaned and repaired the temple, Josiah says, now take the Ark of the Covenant and put it back in the most holy place. Because that's where the presence of God was dwelling in the midst of his people, right? And they'd just been carrying it around on priest's shoulders. This is doing whatever. He says, put it back front and center. The presence of God in the center of our culture. And that's what our church needs. That's what all of our churches and all of our individual lives need is saying, God, we put your presence and your power right back at the heart and center of all that we are and do. And the word of God, and this is incredible. This would be a sermon all on its own. Where, where was the word of God? It was behind the money. Okay, they, they had stacked so much money in front of the word of God, they literally lost sight of it and then didn't even know it was there. And they said, let's bring that word out and let's put it in the middle of the people and let's publicly read it and let's recommit ourselves to it and say, God, help us center our lives on your word. And then thirdly, clean the temple, center your life on the presence and the word of God. Thirdly, celebrate the salvation of God over and over. And this is that part where he reinstates the Passover feast. And he says, we are going to remember, we are going to commemorate, we are going to celebrate the deliverance of our God, delivered us from bondage, delivered us to the promised land, to a right relationship with him, to our inheritance, to all these amazing things. We're going to celebrate that over and over as long as I'm king. That's what Josiah is saying. Now today we have an even greater knowledge because we know that that first Passover and the Passover lambs that were killed and their blood was applied to the doors so that they escaped from Egypt. We know that the ultimate Passover lamb, the New Testament tells us, is Jesus Christ. He comes, the son of God. He takes on human flesh. He lives the perfect, spotless, sinless life that we should have. And he dies on a cross on Passover to say, I break the bondage of sin and death and hell. I liberate you. I bring you home, not, not to that promised land, but to the final ultimate promised land. I bring you into the inheritance of everything good. And I believe renewal happens in our heart and renewal happens in our culture where we say, God, with your presence and your power at the center, we are going to celebrate and celebrate and celebrate and celebrate you and your salvation. We will delight in your salvation. We will rejoice in your salvation. It will be the focus of our lives. It will be the focus of our gatherings. And just friends, in closing, think about how healthy your individual life 
will be, how healthy the church culture will be as we scatter on mission and we live this way, right? And we're pursuing God with focused intent and we are repenting and grieving our sin and we're purging stuff out of our lives that is like drinking toilet water instead of drinking the fountain of living water. But then we're saying, God, we're gonna restore the worship of Jesus Christ, the center, and we're gonna celebrate him over and over and over. We're gonna rejoice in him. We're gonna be ecstatic in him. We're gonna make him so much the center of everything that we're doing that we will never let each other forget. And when we're down in a time like this where stuff is dry and we feel desolate and dehydrated and discouraged and distraught and we're dying, we are going to not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we're gonna go to that crystal clear ice cold water and we're gonna drink and we're gonna drink deeply and it's gonna satisfy our souls. And we're gonna go get somebody else who's thirsty and we're gonna bring them back to the water that we have found. So, let me leave you again with this one big idea. Do you want renewal? Do you want restoration? Renewal, revival, restoration, soul deep, life-changing restoration comes to those who wholeheartedly seek and pursue God's heart. What's your next step to take right now? Let's pray.